live an uncommon life, one needs to learn uncommon disciplines. Welcome back. This is Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Super stoked to have you here today. This is going to be a really interesting conversation for all of us um, because we're living in VUCA times. Uh, you've heard me talk a lot about that, volatile, uncertain, complex, and uh, ambiguous. This COVID-19 election turmoil, boy, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens <laughs> November, December. I'm strapping in, and I'm sure you are as well. And volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity is something that um, military special operators have learned to handle fairly well. It's their new normal. It's always been their normal, but now it's a new normal. And we train for it relentlessly. And it's mostly an attitude and a mindset. But there's a lot of things you can do at an organizational and team level to prepare for volatility and to see through the complexity and all that. And we're going to talk about that today with our two guests who come to us uh, as found, founders or founding principals of the Future Strategy Group. And Peter Kennedy and Joe, De, I'm going to blow it, Joe Dufresne. That's right. Yes. Joe Dufresne, Joe Dufresne are here from, um, to talk about how they help organizations such as FEMA and NASA, Aeronautics and the um, Department of State and other uh, Fortune 500 companies really see through to the other side of that complexity, get to the simplicity on the other side of the complexity and to make good decisions about the future. Boy, don't we all need that in our lives right now. Before I uh, have them take a moment to introduce themselves a little bit further and we get into some kind of rich questions and answers or thought-provoking discussions about future thinking, I would like to say that one of the ways that we think leaders can deal with VUCA is to really unlock the power of their teams because when teams together are acting in a way that is spontaneous, they're leveraging their intuition, they're able to get out of their uh, stuck linear thinking, you know, the things that got them where they are clearly aren't going to get them where they want to go. And so the leader's role is shifting to be more of a coach and a, a growth in, uh, facilitator for their teams. And that's exactly what our Unbeatable Mind Coach Certification Program brings to leaders. You know, that new skill of not just being the, you know, authoritative leader, the strategic thinker, but also the one who is instrumental in unlocking the potential of the team by coaching excellence, coaching to bring out the intuition and ingenuity of the team. So if you're interested in that, please go to unbeatablemind.com and check out the link for the new cohort for Unbeatable Mind Coach Certification. It's a profound program. Uh, this cohort will um, probably be limited to 100 uh, high-level individuals who are you know, interested in these things we talk about on this podcast. So I hope to see you in the next cohort. All right, guys, thanks for joining me. Um, Joe, why don't we start with you? Give us a sense of like, your background and how you came to be a future thinker and, and to work with Future Strategy Group. Well, thank you, Mark. It's, uh, it's great to be with you here today. Um, I, uh, I had a career in the Coast Guard. Um, I started out at the academy and, and um, did about 15 years of various operational assignments, both afloat and ashore, um, had done my headquarters staff assignments and that sort of thing. And I was just coming out of the field and um, it was time to go back to headquarters. And um, 
my boss at the time was going to headquarters as well. And he's like, I'm going to the office of strategic analysis. And, um, and he talked to me about it and, you know, I followed him there and really didn't know what I was getting into. And he said, I'd like for you to, to take over the Coast Guard's, um, a program called Project Evergreen, which was an alternative futures strategy program that used the tools to look 20, 30, you know, whatever distance into the future and then turn around and look at today and uh, what we need to do today. Interesting. And I had never, never heard about Project Evergreen. Um, well, you know, can I ask a question? You know, the Coast Guard is maritime, am I right? That's right. Yep. <laughs> so why do they call it Evergreen? Why not like Everblue or something? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Um, it, uh, <laughs> It stood for a cycle of continuous renewal. So the project had a four-year term. You'd start at the beginning, you'd build scenarios, you'd use those scenarios to build strategies, implement them, and then start all over every, every four years. Interesting. And so it was the idea that this wasn't, this wasn't a, a, a project like most projects where you put a team together and they, they plug through the numbers and they spit out a report and that's it. And then I'm people just, forget just, about it. So you lose all the institutional knowledge and of course, the learning gets yeah. stale and lost. So I love that. So the idea was to, to have a, a perpetual look at the future of threats and opportunities for the Coast Guard and then to have that become institutional knowledge, both the That's processes right. as well as the outcomes. That's right. Interesting. Yeah. And so it, it, uh, you know, it didn't start off out of the, out of the gate as, um, as very impactful organization wide, but you know, by the time I got there, the Coast Guard had been doing it, uh, what people probably about 12 years. <laughs> and, um, and at that point, people were starting to understand it, certainly at the senior levels, and it was starting to get incorporated into to major organizational decision processes like the budget and HR and mm -hmm. major capital acquisitions and those sorts of things. So, um, you know, which, you know, had its benefits, but you know, I, as a, I was a commander at the time and, you know, as, in the military, once you get up to the 05 level, you start to have to broaden your mind about, you know, the rest of the stuff that the organization mm -hmm. does. And it really helped me to, to uh, understand all the things that the Coast Guard dealt with and, and how it all fit together and, and begin to broaden my mind just as a strategic thinker, mm -hmm. you know, be able to, to get that right frame of mind on, on, uh, on right. strategy. That's fascinating. I want to come back later on and ask, um, so you can think about this, but ask what were some of the most interesting or surprising uh, outcomes of some of the evergreen planning and, uh, and how did that play out in execution of Coast Guard strategy or operations? <laughs> I think there's some pretty interesting stories there probably. Absolutely. So Peter, how about you? Uh, give us a little background on yourself and how you came to work at uh, Future Strategies or you know, co-found this really interesting organization. Right. <clears throat> um, my background really is is uh, kind of interesting, and it was a circuitous path that that brought me to this. I started out in my career having studied um, international relations and Latin American relations, and I was uh, advising um, major organizations, major companies on uh, political, economic, and financial events in Latin America. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the course of six years working for the Economist Group, um, I, I came to realize that uh, in in environments of uh, of great complexity and, and often volatile change, there's really no tools for anticipating or planning effectively for that, or at least I thought at the time. Um, I, uh, I, I found out about this organization called the Futures Group located up in central Connecticut that actually had uh, developed and innovated a number of, of really interesting tools, including scenario planning and, 
and technology forecasting and a whole bunch of other really, really powerful tools that I had not been familiar with before. And I thought, Jesus, this would be a great way to segue into um, kind of state of the art way of thinking about the future and helping decision makers mm-hmm. make smart defi- decisions in the, in the face of, of unpredictable, unforecastable kinds of change. Mm-hmm. And, um, the Futures Group evolved, and uh, we worked for, uh, we were later part of a big consulting organization, and then we spin ourselves out about uh, 18 years ago and became Futures Strategy Group. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been at it ever since. Awesome. So, you know, I'm going to ask a question, and I guess, you know, you guys can, uh, maybe, since I don't know which of you will be the right person to answer, I'll kind of let you guys kind of tag team. Sure. And uh, we'll just get into a fun conversation because, you know, one of the things that um, in my perspective in working with a lot of uh, CEOs and teams is that we're pretty target focused on what's right in front of us. Um, did you find when you started this work that it was a real shift in mindset for teams to begin to like get part of their mind and part of their thinking to be looking out five to 10 years because we're so task saturated and distracted with what's going on right now. And I guess the second part of that question is how, how did you do that? Like, cause that's a big shift in mindset. I'll, I'll jump in to start and Joe, definitely you backfill on this because I think you would have a lot to say. Um, I think that is a great question mark. And I think that really does accurately sum up the, um, the friction and the dilemmas that most big organizations um, right. face when you've got, um, high-powered teams that typically partner with us in running a foresight project. Um, those are the same people who the organization has um, placed a lot of demands on. So we, in, in, in effect, get the best and the brightest, but at the same time, they've got pretty busy schedules and pretty significant day jobs that they've got to manage. So it's, it's constantly a tug uh, between their abilities to both focus on their current responsibilities and also think creatively and rigorously about future change. Mm-hmm. Hand it over to Joe because I think the Coast Guard in the way they developed a core team in Project Evergreen was really significant in being able to get some of those really great minds and, and great thinkers and allow them to step a little bit back from their day jobs and have that core of people who could really, really focus on the future and also then later in their careers be able to apply a lot of that learning to actual problem solving. Yeah, let's hear how the Coast Guard did that. I think that'll be a good place to start with that, Joe. Sure, Mark. Yeah, well, I, I, when I came in and started working with Project Evergreen, um, yeah, I started reading the, the scenarios that had been used in the past, and they were just fascinating. I mean, it was like reading, there were five different ones, and it was like reading five very different fiction novels. But it was just real enough where you're like, wow, this is, this so is plausible. Let me pause there just because I don't think everyone would know what you're talking about when you're talking about scenarios. These are, in my thinking, what you just said was these are scenarios that teams in the Evergreen Project looked into the future and said, here's five possible futures. And yes. then you came in and kind of looked at those and said, wow, that's interesting. And um, just reflecting on the different scenarios, like you could see how each one of those could play out. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, my first reaction was I had no idea that the Coast Guard was doing something like this. And then followed up by, I was, was, I'm really glad that we are. And uh, so, you know, it, it was not easy to do. And and we would have workshops with, um, you know, 60, 60 people that were handpicked by, um, by senior leadership because they, you know, they were, uh, 
big thinkers. They could get along well with others. You know, they were they were invested in the organization. And um, it wasn't, it's not easy to step into and live in some of these worlds because frankly, some of them are quite uncomfortable. Right. right. And um, it, it requires a certain frame of mind to do that. And I would say the largest ones really are to the courage and humility to be able to challenge conventional assumptions, both mm-hmm. Coast Guard assumptions and personal closely held beliefs. You know, right. not not to discard them, but to be willing to look look at them, take them out, and spin them around, and and examine them with a critical eye. And then, you know, not, uh, again, you may that you may find out that they're not wrong, but they're not entirely right, and you can right. learn something from that. And that's that's difficult to do. I imagine. Is there also a process to kind of? Look, well, let me first ask this question: How far out are these um, scenarios? Did you look five, three years, five years, ten years, fifty? It, it really depends on the client, uh, the problem you're trying to solve, or the future you're trying to track and understand and plan for. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the Coast Guard, the scenarios were, uh, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, 20, 25 years set out into the future. Wow. Right? Okay. Um, but we, did, we, we typically avoided the, the, the mistake of, of assigning a specific date to that because then people get hung up on that and say, right. well, you know, we're going to go through so many cycles between now and then. Why worry about it? We did a scenario planning project in a different organizational arrangement in a prior company for the Panama Canal that were set 40 years in the future mm. um, because they were thinking about building, this is back in the late 1990s, they were thinking about building that third set of locks and lanes, which mm-hmm. they eventually did. And they wanted our help to understand what the, the future of trade flows would look like, right? Given China's um, rising role in the global economy, they wanted to know about climate change and how that would affect, you know, the, the passages across the Arctic in terms of shipping and navigation and so forth. Mm. So it's for big issues that require major investments of money and time and talent it really mm-hmm. does require that big look out into the future because we, we know it's going to be different and we know it's, it's going to change. And we want to be able to, in our, in our planning, to be able to integrate all the ways in which it can change so, so we do the right things and make the right decisions. And I, and I found that the date, the date needed to be set out far enough in the future where we could be willing to accept something that's totally different than today. Right. right. But not so far out in the future that people are just like, well, we're all going to be robots by then anyway. So, um, but you know, right. something that, something that allows you to think about something differently. It's great to see this happening in the military because generally, you know, we're always fighting the last war, you know, that's kind of the, the going themes, like something happens and you're like, oh shit. And you, you bring the thinking from the last war to it and it doesn't exactly. work. And then you have to innovate, you know, and look at Iraq being the same, you know, you know Iraqi, the invasion of Iraq and looking at it as a conventional operation. And then we declare victory. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we're still there 15 right. years later. Oops. You know, so um, I don't imagine anyone had a future planning around that scenario, or maybe there was, it just, you know, didn't get percolated down to the operational level. You know? Right. We have, we have had scenarios. We had one that was called Forever War. Um, I think that may have been in our first round of scenario planning with the Coast Guard. And mm-hmm. in fact, it, it, it was really you know, built on just a Low cascading yeah. of, you know, global military commitments that we just really couldn't get out of. There's, well, there's, that's you know, actually been fairly close to the truth lately, hasn't it, for the last 20 years? It really has. But the key thing is, is that you don't plan for one scenario. You know, you really right. have to look across a, a range of plausible alternative future worlds and really think about your decisions that you're going to be facing today or next year 
in the context of those future worlds, as if those worlds were really going to happen. Right. So, so do then leaders look at those, let's say you come up with five scenarios, whether your client is the U.S. Coast Guard or Spec Ops or a Fortune 500, and then do the leaders say, you know what, these two or three are the most likely. So to mitigate a risk, we're going to be investing in preparing for these two or three, or they just have to like cover down on one possible that they think is most likely. Well, the, the, the way the, the exercise is played is that you really take every single you know, world that you develop and treat it independently mm-hmm. and come up with a set of, of plans and strategies and actions that fit that world. And then towards the end of the exercise, each of the groups then presents its own strategies and plans and stress tests them in the other environments so that you really get a sense of what are the common what are the common issues and themes and mm-hmm. needs and requirements that fit across most yeah, the, the generalized the requirements world. that you can set up that'll meet all the yep. worlds. Yeah. And then and, you become less reactionary when one of them starts to play out, I imagine, because you've already gamed it out or simulated. You, you, you've it. taken into consideration and, and you build a set of contingent plans and strategies for uh, wild card kinds of things or, or uh, unexpected or extreme kinds of events, you build that into it. Um, right. But you, you know, it's really important that decision makers get away from the whole sort of knee jerk thinking that one of these worlds is going to happen because none of them will. The, you know, the probability of any one of the worlds coming true is, is zero. Right. Yeah. <laughs> even if you sense. get something right. Well, so do you also have a process to, let's say you go through one cycle and then you're coming back? You know, I, I'm thinking of the Coast Guard every four years, you know, kind of reset the process with a new team. Do you have a lessons learned process where you look back and say, here's kind of how we did based upon these five scenarios. And it's, it sort of came in between, but, you know, maybe it was close to this one. And then, and that'll refine your thinking going forward or the, you know, the projections going forward. Um, well, I would, I would say from my experience, um, the scenarios are really just a tool. And uh-huh. so, you know, the, the tool gets built pretty much this using the same process from time to time. And they, you know, there's, there's certainly some common themes. I think, I don't think I've seen a set mm-hmm. of scenarios yet that doesn't have a pandemic in it. Go figure. Right. Um, uh, but what, what is interesting is when you can go back to previous cycles and look at some of the insights and the strategies that came out of those cycles and then look at the strategies and insights that came out independently from a next cycle. And if you see things that are continuing across four years, eight years, um, that's compelling, you know, and, right. and, and it's something that you can sink your teeth into. And the Coast Guard had a couple of those nuggets that, uh, yep. you know, that came out. Such as? Uh, well, I think, um, Joe, I think you were going to probably say this. I think early on in the Evergreen um, history, uh, the, the Arctic emerged as an important focus for future Coast Guard operations. Hmm. Yeah. And um, from the early stages when, uh, when Project Evergreen was actually called Project Longview um, back in the, uh, the mid-90s, there were some insights that came out of that, one being maritime domain awareness, which is you know, an obvious term for us these days. But back then, the concept of having an awareness of all of the capabilities, authorities, threats that are going on in the maritime, uh, particularly in the coastal domain, was something new and, frankly, that hadn't really been explored much yet. And then 9-11 happened, and then the boat lift um, of the evacuation of everybody off of Manhattan reinforced that, man, if we had had 
a strong maritime domain awareness uh, plan in place for that, not just in New York, but all across the coast when, you know, everything locked down. Um, and then also there was a, there was a strategy that, that talked about merging our traditional stovepipes of, uh, mm -hmm. of various mission programs into one unified commander, operational commander that had all the authorities and all the capabilities in a geographic region. Mm -hmm. Those are things that hadn't been acted on yet. But after 9-11, the Coast Guard saw that, yeah, that, that would have really helped out and then eventually moved forward on yeah. it. Yeah. I want to talk about that. So 9-11, you're just saying kind of catalyzed the um, understanding of the importance of this VUCA type forward planning, you know, so you become less reactionary, more responsive. But it seems like the Coast Guard was pretty damn responsive on 9-11 to organize that flotilla so quickly and, you know, to to do what you call that Dunk Dunkirk in America operation. Can you talk about that briefly? Sure, absolutely. And fascinating. And I don't know how that, many people know about that. That evacuation, of course, was not exclusively Coast Guard, but the Coast Guard's right. piece to it was that you had this operational commander out there um, on the water looking at what was going on and and responded in frankly typical Coast Guard fashion because the Coast Guard has this set of principles of operations that have been passed down to us, you know, derivatively since Hamilton and as revenue cutter officers. And some of them being things like flexibility and unity of effort. And the mm -hmm. biggest one, which you know very well being a, being a SEAL is that on-scene initiative, you know, mm -hmm. that granting the operational commander who's on the ground, sees what's going on, the ability to make those field decisions without having to go up through all the chain of command. Right. But to do that, of course, they're not just cutting out the chain of command. The chain of command has to provide that strategic context to that commander before he's out there. Mm -hmm. And this whole process um, began to build operational commanders that think this way and are able to translate high-level strategic direction to the field, which is like, that's, that's the holy grail, you know? Yeah. That's so important now for leaders to be able to allow the autonomous operations of their folks in the field like that, but to provide top cover and strategic guidance, like you said, right? right. But to trust that they're going to be able to make good decisions. Yep. So that's, that's mindset, but there's a lot of training involved. And of course, military organizations are relentless with their training. And that's one of our drumbeats as an organization is we got to train mindset. You got to train flexibility. You got to train foresight. You can't just can't be just a one-time thing like a seminar with you yeah. guys. It's got to be something that, and I'm sure once you're done with the scenarios, you, you know, the part of the follow-on is to, you know, set up a, a training plan so people can constantly flex these new muscles. Otherwise, they'll just go away, right? Right. So let me, um, you know, just imagining that we got an executive team that's listening, or or a CEO is going to share this with their team, and they're already thinking, you know what? Um, Peter and Joe, we're already a pretty agile organization, and we we can we can pivot quickly. We we pivoted quickly with the pandemic. So why why do we need more training and foresight? And what's the difference between agility and foresight? Yeah, I I, I would say that um, you know foresight scenario planning is really almost a precondition for being an agile organization. Interesting, because un, un, until you really go through the process of systematically thinking about how you're operating environment, your markets, your customers, the technology, the competition, regulators, how all of those things are apt to play out in the future. 
and think of your business in that context, you're really not going to be agile. You're going to you're going to really be merely repeating what you're doing and making incremental changes, and 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 not putting yourself in a position where you're going to be able to respond in a decisive manner to a very very different set of conditions than you're otherwise expecting. Yeah, it yeah. makes sense. You know, uh, let me just uh, uh, opine on that, and then I'll turn it over to you, Joe. It's like in the SEAL teams, in order for us to do contingency planning, we had to be able to imagine what contingencies would face us, right? And so we mm-hmm. couldn't just be, you know, able to adapt quickly. We needed to know what to adapt quickly to so that we could plan for that and, and train for that. Right. So right. Okay. And, and, and really take you out of your comfort zone. Yes, that's, absolutely. That's a, that's a really big thing. And, and set up really the ex- like setting up the expectation that that, those contingencies will probably be one of one or more of them will be the likely outcome and not the plan that you put together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. It's not the plan. It's the planning. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, but agility can take two forms too. You can, you can be reactive or you can be proactive and mm-hmm. you know, you can be agile in either way. And, you know, I always like to describe it, um, you know, being in the Navy may understand the snake wake that, uh, you know, someone who's driving a ship or a boat, if they're not very experienced and you look behind them, their wake is looks like a snake because every time a wave hits them, they overcompensate and it goes back mm-hmm. and forth. And, you know, a good, a good ship driver, a good boat driver knows how to look for some, an external influence that's going to affect it and can, can make that correction before it actually comes. And, and it's, that same, it's that same sort of thinking organizationally when you do this type of stuff. Even when you do get hit something that you, with something that you didn't expect, it doesn't scare you because you've been through it before, either either virtually or, or in, in practice, and, and you can react to it uh, quicker. Right. What's um, when you work with a team, when it comes to process, and then the most successful teams that develop foresight and proactive agility. I love that. What what kind of process do they implement? or new, I should say new processes or new standards they implement into their organization that, that really ensure that the, this new type of mindset is ingrained into the culture? Let, let me jump in there because um, it, it brings up, I think, a really important attribute of, of foresight. And, and that is that, you know, we all talk about that this must be a um, sustainable process. It must be, mm-hmm. it's not one and done. You, you must continually renew it you need to bring increasing number of people inside the organizations, make them part of the team, make them own it, make them understand it and feel ownership over it. And in the early days working with the Coast Guard, I had the privilege of being there really uh, um, in, the, in, in the in the really early days when it first got started. The, uh, the people who were part of the original project team tended to be in many ways very much kind of right break thinkers and outside the box and imaginative. I mean, they had operating skills and all the really good traditional Coast Guard attributes, but they were, there was a lot of really open-mindedness and creativity there that we, you know, we could made a very, very strong team. But one of the things that we, we learned after that was that, you know, something you need in order for this to be something that is sustained and, and, and driven deep down to the organization. We also know that you need the people who have that strict engineering mentality you know, the, the numbers people, the more conventional left brain thinkers, we need them on the team too, because those are the people who are, we're going to be relying upon them to actually put these great insights and strategies and plans into action. Mm-hmm. And that was a really important learning that we had throughout the course of Evergreen, that we, we, we can't just be comfortable with the, you know, the, the creative types, the innovative thinkers. We also need the people who are a little bit uncomfortable in that environment, but 
we are going to rely upon them downstream for making sure that these big ideas get put into action. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, and, and the, uh, I mean, you can speak from the Coast Guard. You talked about that training market. We, we would go out and, and uh, brief Project Evergreen and the strategies to our, our senior leadership uh, uh, workshops and, and uh, meetings. It was part of the curriculum for the senior enlisted uh, leadership course, uh, the mid-grade officer leadership course. So you start you start building, and you know the Coast Guard's like the other military services. The next commandant thirty years from now is already in the service, and mm -hmm. so you start to build that commandant and and train them right at the the mid-grade officer and, and enlisted leader level. Right. Well, last time we spoke, I mentioned my experience with McRaven when he was a commander. And then as a, a com captain 06, a commander, he was my uh, SEAL Team 3 CO. Then I worked for him again at uh, Naval Special Warfare Group 1 when he was a captain and he was the Commodore. It's funny how we have these different terms for the same. <laughs> yeah. He's a captain, but he's also a Commodore. But um, he was one of the f SEAL leaders who uh, you know, really was either through his own training or just naturally inclined to be a future thinker and to imagine way outside the box. And he, on his own initiative, began pitching something called NSW-21. And here's this guy who's, you know, there's, there's three different Naval Special Warfare groups, and then there's the headquarters above that, and then there's the whole Special Operations Command above that. And here's this one kind of, in, in this sense, a lowly guy who's pitching a change to the entire st structure and, and way that the SEALs operate. And I remember him being kind of like a one-man band. And I was, I remember in retrospect, I'm like, why didn't we have a futures planning group, you know, that that supported him in that. And I think uh, I'm hoping that Spec War does or, or SOCOM does. I don't know. Maybe you guys know whether SOCOM has this type of initiative. Yeah. So, I, I, don't I don't know that. I don't know. Yeah. So what's really interesting to me is like, you know, you guys now have been working with a lot of different companies and, and uh, NGOs and whatnot for years. And so there must be some, generic kind of sense or knowledge that you guys have gleaned because scenarios keep coming up that overlap or look the same, you know, whether you're working with an Exxon or Coast Guard or, you know, NASA. So can you share what, you know, with the increasing in a, you know, integration of new advanced technologies and AI and, you know, internet of things and all that, along with things like um, accelerating climate change, uh, if we assume that's a real thing, global warming, if we assume that's a real thing, um, political disability, nationalism, like, so, you know, pandemics, what do you see as plausible, I'm not going to say probable or likely, but plausible scenarios <clears throat> that will, could play out in the next five to 10 years? And, and any thoughts on how some of your clients are preparing for those. Do I have to Jim. pay you for this information, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so Mark, you successfully went down a pretty robust checklist. Did I? <laughs> of, of, the, of really mega forces. It's called frame, framing the question. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, but talking about climate change and talking about the future of work and the role of AI and machine learning in, in our worlds, you know, rise of nationalism, um, future of China, right? Um, the 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 future of trade flows, and um, uh, you know, the the infrastructure needs and demographic changes of emerging and developed countries. I mean, all of those things are really the big mega 
forces for change that are going to create and interact in all different kinds of complex and confusing kinds of a way. Mm-hmm. And, and as a company, we're really reluctant to go out. And uh, in fact, we refuse to say, this is a most likely, I mean, we can say some forces for change are going to be more powerful than others, and, and they're going to be more impactful in certain circumstances. But in, in terms of being able to give one or two integrated pictures of how that's all going to come together is something that kind of clashes with our, you know, the our main yeah. reason for being, if it will. You, you want to train people to be thinking about these things. You don't want to make predictions. You don't, you don't want to be a predictive organization. Yeah, because, you know, even the most, what we say is even the most prescient view about the future that really gets a lot of things right the more detailed it's going to be, the more it's going to be wrong in fundamental ways too. Right. And we certainly don't want to put anybody on the, you know, the, uh, in the uh, uncomfortable and disadvantageous you know, position of, of having gotten something really big wrong when they should have been you know, in a much more aggressively hedging kind of a hedge situation. Right, right. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the, the beauty of these scenarios too is that it, it allows you to, to study, say, like AI, Without studying just AI, you can put it into a scenario and or global trade and, and vice versa. So it, it gives you a, a much, uh, much more freedom to to explore it. Yeah. So yeah, so we don't have to look at just one of these facts. You cut out a little bit, so I'm going to reframe that. You don't have to look at just one of these as an individual impact. Like what's the impact of AI? But you can frame it in the context of how AI or advanced technology can affect the future of warfare or you know trade flows, like you said, or political structures, right? Because they're all interrelated, these things. Yeah. Right. Yeah, interesting. You're familiar with the work of George Friedman? Yes. Yeah, George is, you know, he's, he's one of the f- folks that, um, it, it, for me anyways, is a trusted source of future insight because he looks at the world from the perspective of geopolitics and geopolitics generally has a big influence on on the movement of people, on power structures, and you can, you know, then there's kind of a predictive quality of how certain boundary countries or structures, you know, that we create as human beings are influenced by the ge- geography. And um, do you take into account that ge- geopolitics? You know, for instance, it, it was probably fairly predictable that China would emerge and rise as a global power you know, 100 years ago, 75, 50 years ago. And, you know, people could have been preparing for that because of their geopolitics and the landmass they own, their access to the oceans and their aspirations as a culture and all that kind of thing. They just had to deal with their internal struggles. Mm-hmm. You know, once mm-hmm. they solve those, then they could turn their focus externally. There's a question in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. The question is, do, do, we, do we take those big sort of right, foundational geopolitical, right, geopolitical right. things into account? Yeah, we absolutely have to. I mean, um, there's usually a you know, major defining variable in our worlds that has to do with um, sort of the state of the world and, 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 and who in the world are the, the, the really dominant defining actors in those worlds. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that requires then thinking about, you know, China, for example, you know, becoming an, an economic hegemon, mm-hmm. uh, almost the way Great Britain was in the 19th century and the U.S. was in the second half of the 20th century. 
mm-hmm. um, thinking about it really in those terms. And then what are, the, what are the implications then for supply chains and what are the implications for the future role of the dollar in, in global commerce? Right. Um, as the reserve currency of choice, as it is today, and, and, and lots of other things as well in terms of where value is getting produced, where young people want to move and start their careers. Um, we don't take it for granted that it's going to be in the United right. States and Western Europe. So without being predictive, can we talk about trends that are fairly obvious that are happening? And like, for instance, I'll throw it out there and you guys can uh, uh, push back or say yes. Because um, you've already, you know, touched upon us, you know, several of them, Peter. One is that we're heading toward really a bipolar world where China and its surrogates are kind of squaring off technologically and, through, you know, trade and economically and militarily, both on the oceans and maybe on land, but also in space. So you have U.S., Europe, and those allied kind of squaring off against China and Russia and those allied. Is that a trend that you see? Is there accuracy in that statement? And the world's kind of lining up that way? I can make a case. I can develop a, a coherent story, as mm-hmm. you just outlined, and I can, yeah. I can also write something that's very much in a different direction. Is that right? That's interesting. Yeah. What would I the different direction be? Because it seems like all the things that I read and see kind of point to the direction that I just outlined. So I'm curious, like to poke a hole in that thinking. Uh, well, I mean, you know, personally, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that all of the pressures that China as a state, as an economy, as a society are going to be uh, ameliorated in a, in a way that, that really brings it to the position of dominance that mm. it's really depending upon to achieve all those both terrestrial goals and, and in, in space, which is a really fascinating thing to consider as well. Right. Uh, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion by any means. Well, you can also just just think of it in terms of of power, and you know we always think about global power in terms of nation states, but you know who's to say that there isn't some other form of power? Maybe it's technological uh, technological power, like power know, of the people. <laughs> exactly. You know, maybe you get these uh, diasporas of people that don't live in the same country that actually control you know policy, public policy, and foreign policy. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, you, you were you were speaking, Mark, before about uh, you know what other really big forces for change are out there, and, and I think it's probably worthwhile for um, you know your listeners uh, to uh, if we share some of the things that we've heard recently, really from both government and from private yeah. sector and from you know NGO kinds of clients, is that just about everybody now is thinking about climate change. Right. And, and really what that's going to mean in terms of you know uh, where people live, how they live price of fuel, alternatives developing, shipping lanes, um, supply chains, um, you know, what we consume, how we consume it, what kind of regulations are going to come out of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Where are the ingredients? Where are, We have a food manufacturing and marketing client that wants to know where are the future ingredients going to come from if they can't get corn, grain, and soybeans at a, at a reasonable price? Mm. Uh, well, do they have to start stockpiling alternative ingredients given the uh, pressures on the environment now? And, and the lack right. of reliability on um, you know traditional levels of harvest. Um, right. This is one that that affects everything. Yeah. Right. There's no stone unturned when yeah. you're talking about global climate change and yeah. the impact. I mean, you could have whole cities that end up being submerged. You know, I, I read one interesting scenario that said, you know, New York City might need to be abandoned. You know, in a hundred years, with sea level rise. That's you know one 
pl- possible scenario. I don't know how plausible it is. Yeah. What do you do? The dislocation of all those coastal regions if the sea levels do rise that much yeah. because of melting ice. Yeah, and there's so many in food production and distribution. Wow. Yeah. And and then also how that, that triggers um, mass movements of people. Right. And, you know, in, in developed rich societies, we can deal with that over time, I think. Right. In ways in which it's not destabilizing and disruptive to you know normal life and and politics and policies, but you just think about that in um, developing world countries that are already living right. um, close to sea level and what that's going to mean Southeast right. Asia especially. Well, also, I mean, to, to push back a little bit on what you just said, look at the immigration you know from the wars Syria and Sudan that almost broke up the EU a few yeah. years ago, right? And so that mass migration could change everything, not just you know, not just the war-torn or poverty-stricken areas, but absolutely, it could, it could bring a whole new you know, way of looking at how we live and structure you know, the organization of human lives. And kind of, I think part of that is moving out of that post-industrial or being in a post-industrial area. Everything's on the table, you know, and technology... The acceleration of technology and AI has allowed for new thinking on forms of governance and what it means to be a citizen and, you know what I mean, how to handle some of these challenges. Blockchain is a great example of that, right? If we move to a decentralized governmental structures instead of centralized, decentralized currency structures instead of centralized or some sort of hybrid, wow, then all sorts of interesting things start popping up. Anyways, yeah. I just went off on a little tangent there. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, and as organizations, you know, having this this toolbox of of different futures um, allows you to think about things that you might need to start doing today. I mean, do we need to start building our communications infrastructure centralized or or regionalized or you know what is our what does our human resources package need to look like that we're going to be building for the next twenty years? Um, right. Specialist versus generalist. You know, all these sorts of dilemmas you can you can tease out in various different ways and look for common threads. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is, and we can kind of wrap up on this, um, it's not just about thinking with foresight, but acting with strategic intent. Like you've got to start acting now in ways that are going to um, both keep the mindset or build the mindset for strategic foresight or, or that foresight thinking, but also how do you act and set up contingencies and train for those contingencies and, and take very deliberate actions that you, you know, like you said earlier, Peter, that are going to span across all these potential futures that will help you build a foundation to be able to be proactive in your agility as opposed to be reactive in your agility. Yeah, exactly. It's just said before, you know, it's um, people get the impression that practicing foresight is building strategies for the future. And, and and really what it is, is using the future as a lens so that you make the smartest and the best decisions you can possibly make today and next week and, and the week after that. So it's really present based. The hard deliverables, what we call the deliverables of that is more robust plans and strategies and insights that are going to work no matter how the future turns out. And then the soft side of that is the change in thinking that you referred to, Mark, before. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking with strategic intent so that it actually changes the way people assess the environment around them, the, the options they have at their disposal, um, how they relate to their organization, to their job, to their world, and so forth. It has a very, very powerful effect on that. And even beyond their jobs, too, in their personal life as well. Right. Yeah, this is this is something that affects everybody at all levels. The future that's upon us or coming upon us fast. 
Guys, how can people learn more about your organization? What's your website? Do you have uh, social media? You know, where can people go and anything you want to tell folks about your organization and how they could work with you? So uh, website's a good place to start. Um, www.futuresstrategygroup.com. Make mm-hmm. sure you see it's futures is plural. That's intentional. Futuresstrategygroup.com. And all of our social media connections are right there on the front page of our website as well. Okay. Awesome. And who's your ideal client? Joe? <laughs> ideal client? Uh, anybody, any organization, frankly, that, uh, that has a, a level of uncertainty in, in their mission, in, uh, in their uh, portfolio, or um, just in, in their, their scope of operations, um, because they're, they're the ones that are ultimately going to need to deal with that level of uncertainty. Right. Awesome. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. This is an important discussion and super fascinating, especially to me. And uh, I look forward to further collaboration with you guys and uh, appreciate your, what you're doing. So who you yeah, very much, Mark. Yeah. Great conversation, Mark. Thanks. I agree. Thank you very much. All Have right, folks. Um, that's a wrap. This is the Unbeal Mind <laughs> podcast. That was Joe Dufresne and Peter Kennedy of the Futures Strategy Group www.futures strategygroup.com. Um, I think this is going to be this is essential knowledge, essential skills for any uh, organization, any leader that wants to thrive in VUCA. So check them out. Uh, share this podcast. Thanks for listening, and uh, stay focused and be unbeatable. See you next time. Hoo ya! Divine out.